0: Open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 13. And as you make your way in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, a couple things I want to address on the front end this morning. Uh, first off, I just want to, uh, to everybody who recognized that we brought something back this morning for the first time in a long time, is we gave you an opportunity to greet those around you at the beginning of the service. Now for extroverts like me, I'm honest, if I'm really honest, my heart leapt, Okay. Like, it was good, y'all. I mean, it was really good. Probably better than it should have been, all right? Then, the flip side is, for y'all's in, for the introverts in the room, you died a little on the inside, okay? And we get that, all right? I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. But let me tell you the reason why we did that today. It is not, uh, so this is why I'm asking our introverts to bear with me a little bit in the days ahead. Uh, as the Lord has been answering prayers and as our church continues to grow, uh, it is no longer possible for us to come in to a worship service at Indian Baptist Church and immediately recognize who our first-time visitors or guests or who are people that we, we don't know who they are. the reality is is that in 2022 we had over 500 first-time visitors or guests we had well over 100 new members already in 2023 uh, we have had over 20 people become new members and we've had dozens already of first-time visitors and guests and that is a good praise the Lord problem can we praise the Lord for that but that being the case, as our church continues to grow, we have to be more intentional about how we greet people and welcome people. And so we are going to try to be amping up our greeting team in the days ahead. If you'd like to serve on that team, just let us know. Man, if you are one of those extra extroverts, let's just, let us know. Write that on the back of one of your little Connect cards. Put that in one of our collection boxes and we'll be in touch with you. But here's the deal. Uh, We cannot just depend on a greeting team to do that. That is everybody's responsibility as followers of Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 to do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And so that is a call for everyone. That's not a church growth strategy. That is a spiritual calling. And so let me challenge everyone here at Eden Baptist Church in the days ahead, we want this place to be the most friendliest place Possible. We don't want anybody to leave here that didn't at least get one person shake their hand and just tell them I'm glad that you're here. But that doesn't just happen to happen on the worship service. That's why you're standing in line to check in your kids. That's why uh, you're walking in the hallway just smiling. Greek. You don't have to know everybody's name, and that's okay. Uh, inside the church, everybody doesn't have to know everybody, but everybody needs to know some somebodies. And we do that in life groups and in disciple groups, smaller settings. But in the worship gathering, we're not going to know everybody, but we just all need to take on that mantle of hospitality. Church, we can do this, and we should do this in the days ahead. So if you're going to take up, let's covenant together today to say, I'm going to make it my responsibility to make Enon one of the most friendliest places possible. Can you Can I get an amen to that today? Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and then lastly, I want to say in your worship guide this morning, you will see a place for where you can nominate... Uh, men to serve as deacons. Another praise the Lord reason as our church continues to grow. Our deacons at our church who help us serve our widows and help uh, serve in practical ways. Here at Enon, our deacons do not lead the church, but they are leaders in the church. One of the greatest ways they leave is by, lead is by serving. And so uh, as our church continues to grow, we need some more men in this role. It is a very important role. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13. Uh, through 13 is a requirement list there it should be listed there in your insert as well but it takes some time. You have until the first Sunday in March to pray about some men who hold those qualities that you would like to write down to submit them, to nominate them. And then myself and our, uh, our, our deacon uh, leaders will go through those names and we will do some interviews and interview potential candidates. And so again, hey, praise the Lord that God is drawing people to his church. So that being said, hey, I invite you to stand with me this morning. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now there were those at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, believing That God, you want to speak to us this morning. Would you lead us in your word? Speak, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we continue in our Discipleship Pathway series, we have two more weeks after this Sunday. uh, But we're wrapping up this morning where we've been looking at what are the marks of a disciple of Jesus. And we've identified six different marks of a disciple of Jesus, and they are listed there again on your worship guide. They're there on the screen. We've walked through the first four. We've taken a deep dive into each one of those. And this morning, we're going to wrap it up. Our last two marks of a disciple that we've identified here at Enon are that somebody must be devoted to worship, and they must be living life gospel sent when we talk about living sent. Now this morning in Acts chapter 13, we see both of these things are apparent. We see that these early disciples of Jesus, these followers of Jesus, that they are, the Bible says they've gathered, and we don't really have any knowledge of why they've gathered for any other reason other than to worship the Lord. The Bible says here, while they were ministering unto the Lord with prayer and fasting. Now, they're, they're there not to be ministered to, but to minister unto the Lord. They are worshiping the Lord And then what happens? While they're worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. So this is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Here you see worship led to sending. And all throughout Scripture, in church history, we see that devotion to worship almost always leads to dedication in the mission of the gospel. And so today I want to dive into these two and just give us what does it look like to be devoted to worship and what does it look like to be living life gospel sent. So if you're keeping notes this morning, our fifth marker of a disciple of Jesus is that they are devoted to worship. Now again, we can understand that worship should be a clear marker of a disciple of Jesus. And worship in some ways should be something that we say, yes, I understand what that is. But in some ways, it's also kind of mystical. It's kind of, it, it's kind of hard to really nail down what is worship. In some ways, worship is personal, meaning that it is something that can't be seen. It is between you and God. But then also, worship is corporate. As we gather together here on Sunday morning, we are gathered for corporate worship. In some ways, worship can be internal, Meaning that nobody around you really understands that you're worshiping, but it is you can have a quiet heart unto God and be worshiping God. But in some ways it's external through raising your hands, praising God, bowing down. Worship can be momentary, as in I've set aside some times to worship God, but then it can be perpetual. As in I daily should be worshiping God in everything. That I say and do. And and while the idea of worship is clear, but it's also mysterious, the truth is, is that we know that the one true God, the God of the Bible, commands and deserves our worship. In Psalms 96, verse 9, the psalmist says, Worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him all the earth. Now to be able to understand how to really worship the Lord, what does it look like to be worship, to worship the Lord? I want to give you two passages of scripture we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 4 and Romans chapter 12. But let's start off John chapter 4 beginning in verse 23. And this is as Jesus is having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well... He's talking to this woman who is dry and empty in her soul, and he is telling her that he is living water who can quench her soul. And if you're here this morning or if you're watching or listening online, I want you to know today that that is still absolutely 100% true, is that all of us are dry and empty in our souls without Jesus, but Jesus does truly offer living water. He can quench that inner thirst that we all have without God. But in that same conversation, Jesus makes a very profound statement about worship. In verse 23, he says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, the word worship that is used here in the Greek is proskunie, which means to bow down, to give homage or reverence, but it also means to kiss the hand. And I love that definition of worship there. It's most commonly seen in the New Testament when people would come to Jesus and they would fall on their knees, is what scripture would say, and they would worship him. It's this idea of somebody bowing down and worshiping God. John chapter 4 here tells us, shows us that the first truth about worship is, is that worship is an action or an effort of the heart. Worship is something that begins on the inside. People bow down by giving acknowledgement and adoration of Him. It is something, sometimes we see it externally, but it starts internally. It starts on the inside. It is where you come in humble adoration and acknowledgement of who God is. Now let me give you some of the ways, some of the actions that always seem to follow worship of the heart, sincere worship of the heart. First, worshiping God from the heart happens when the Spirit leads us to acknowledge to God who He is. One of the most significant forms of true worship is not when we come to worship and we come to God to get something from God, but rather we come to God to give to God what He deserves. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 13. They have gathered together to minister unto the Lord. There's nothing wrong with coming in on Sunday mornings and coming to say, God, I want you to fill my heart. I'm hungry for you. I long for your presence to what we can gain from the Lord. That's good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But first and foremost, we should come as his loyal subjects who come to give to God what he is worthy of. And when I pursue God and I give God what he is worthy of, then I enter into the presence of God. In Psalms 113, verses 4 through 5, we see the psalmist worshiping and praising God By telling God who he is. He says, the Lord is high above the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? Now, the psalmist is saying this unto God. God doesn't need to be reminded that he is on high. God doesn't need to be reminded that he's above the nations. He has not forgotten about that. But rather what he's doing there is he's just telling God what he is worthy of hearing from his loyal, loving subjects. He is worthy of us telling him that he is high and exalted, that there are none like him. In the same way that we see in these moments of true worship, when we're telling God who he is, it usually should cause us to be moved to bow down to God in reverence. Anytime I focus my mind on who God really is, it always shows me who I really am. I see that God is holy and I am not. God is high and lifted up and I am temporal. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, we see the great humility that John experienced when he saw Jesus in his resurrected state. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Those moments when you truly entered into the presence of God and all you can do is just tell God who He is and and in that moment you recognize how low you are. This is what it means to kiss the hand of God, to come into His presence. Secondly, worshiping God from our heart happens not just when we tell God who He is, but also it should lead us to express to God our thanks and love for God. And again, all over the Scripture we see God's people God's children expressing to God love and thanks. In Psalms 18, 1, we see that God desires us to express our love to him saying, I love you, O Lord, my strength. In Psalms 100, verse 4, we see God desires us to express thanks to him saying, Enter him his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now, this is something that's neat to think about. So we know when we're reading these psalms, hey, that is David or that is Asaph or that is one of these great men of God or Solomon. They are telling God, I love you or God, I enter your courts with thanksgiving and praise, which is true. But we also need to remember that they are writing the scriptures inspired by God. So in in one way, God is telling David what to write and then David is telling it back to God. God is telling David, or telling the psalmist in Psalms 18, verse 1, Hey, I want you to tell me that I love you, O Lord, my strength. And then David tells that back to God. What should that say to us this morning? God wants us to say to him, I love you. God has inspired in Scripture to let us know that he is worthy of our thanks and our adoration. In the same way that it blesses our hearts to hear our children or our grandchildren say, I love you or thank you, Daddy. Or in my house with a four-year-old when they say, I love you, and I look at them and say, it's a good thing you're cute. <laughs> you know. God wants to hear that from us. He wants to hear that from us for us to lovingly tell Him, God, I love you. And then finally, worshiping God happens from the heart when the Spirit just leads us to want to be with Him. Worshiping God from the heart, we recognize it when we just want to be in the presence of God. Psalms 42, verses 1 through 2, the psalmist, we see him desiring the presence of God. He says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Friends, disciples of Jesus need to be those people who are devoted to worship. They know God in His holiness. They are regularly offering thanks and, and, and praise unto God. And ultimately, they are the people that just want to abide in the presence of God. And I want you to hear this this morning. The presence of God is a real thing, it's not some, it, is, it is mysterious, but it's not imaginary, it is real. I love what Charles Spurgeon. He spoke about the realness of God's presence to His people, and this is what he said: Spurgeon said, "The actual, though spiritual, coming of Christ, not the second coming, so about the presence of God entering a room or being there with you, is what we so much desire." He said, "By spiritual, we do not mean unreal." In fact, the spiritual is what is most real to spiritual men. He said, I believe in the true, real presence of Jesus with his people, for such a presence has been real to my spirit. Worshiping God brings about the presence of God in our lives, and he is real when God enters the room or God sits with you and you sense his nearness. I had a church member tell me a story just this last week, and, and by the way, uh, if I ever tell a story from a church member i 've asked permission by the way, so don 't be afraid to like tell me something you know, coming to a sermon near you okay that's not going to happen all right <laughs> But I asked a church member here recently uh, he was telling me a story about a moment when he was going in to have a heart procedure. He said he 'd never been afraid really to have these kind of procedures before, but <laughs> He said they put him on this cold hospital bed and they started wheeling back towards uh, where the procedure was going to take place. And something was happening, had to wait. They pushed him over in a corner of this cold hallway by himself in this bed. He had to wait there for almost half an hour. And he said as he waited there, he began to be afraid and, and, and was cold and a little fearful. And he said, but then he remembered to pray. And he said, I started praying, Jesus, would you be with me? God, I know that you number my days. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be with me. And he said, and he wept as he was telling this story. He said, Pastor Zach, I'm telling you, it felt like Jesus, just a warmth came over me in that cold hospital hallway, in that cold bed. And I knew Jesus was there. And that's real. Worship is an effort, first, of the heart. And then secondly... Those who worship the Lord worship, it's an effort of the hands. Now, in Romans 12, verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul calling God's people to worship him, saying, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's that word worship again. But this time it's a different word in the Greek. This word in the Greek is latreia which means to render service to or to minister to. In this word, Greek word, he's not talking about internal heart-driven worship, but he's talking about external actions. He's talking about ministering unto God by doing certain things. This is In this text, he's saying the way that you worship God, an action is to fully surrender your life to Jesus, to say, here's my life, everything, oh Lord, it is yours. This is an act of worship. And so it reminds us that there are several acts of worship that we can do to express to God our, our worship with our hands, with our actions. First, we can do that with our time. Those who worship God with their hands, they worship God in their time. Which means you practically set aside time to do certain things of worship. It means you set aside time to pray. You set aside time to read God's Word. You set aside time to come to church, to go to life groups, to do things that matter. George Mueller, the incredible prayer, and, uh, prayer leader and missionary, he made this statement. I love this. He said, the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Isn't that good? He's saying in his disbursements of his time, he's going to worship the Lord by saying, the first thing I'm going to do every day is I'm going to get my soul happy in Jesus. Which, by the way, that, that also, that's a little different than just a quiet time. That's a little different than just getting up and reading passages and going to work and forgetting. He said, I'm doing that. But he's meeting with Jesus. He's coming in the presence of God. Another way that we worship God, we do so with our talents. God has given us all gifts and talents and abilities, passions and things that he wants us to worship him with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17, we're reminded that God has given all of us gifts as his children. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, talking about gifts, for the common good. Now when we usually think about spiritual gifts and worshiping God with our gifts, sometimes we wrongly think about, you know, the, the churchy gifts or whatever. We think about preaching, teaching, singing, playing an instrument, but that's that's not maybe not be the way that God's gifted you, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that you don't have gifts. One of my dearest friends in the world is right here on the front row, Mr. John Hambright, my former pastor. And he is by far, he is gifted, and his gifts are easy to see. He's an incredible teacher. He's one of the most joyful, upfront people I know. Brother John is truly the only pastor that I've ever known that I can introduce him to a first-time visitor or guest, and he can hug him and kiss him on the forehead and it not be weird, okay? (laughs) Now, Miss Linda, on the other hand, her gifts are a little bit different. She's a little bit more reserved, a little bit more uh, behind the scenes. But one of her spiritual gifts, if you ever notice, watch her on a Sunday morning, is God has gifted her with the ability to see hurting people. And she will walk through the sanctuary and just greet hands and greet people and shake hands and talk to people. Several years ago, there was one lady who was coming to church regularly, and Miss Linda had introduced herself to her. She would come by and greet her and hug her and talk to her. And one day, after months had gone by, she she reached up to Miss Linda. She said, Miss Linda, I want to thank you so much for greeting me and speaking to me and, and hugging me every day. And she was a widowed lady, and this is what she said. I realized just this last week that often you are the only human that touches me all week. Think about that. She was worshiping God by using her gifts of compassion. And it was meaning being very meaningful in the lives of other people. We also can worship God with our treasure. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the most scriptural ways to worship God is to do so by giving financially through the the local church, through your tithes and offerings. All over the Bible, we see where financial offerings to God is a consistent way that God has called us to worship Him. But finally, those who worship God with their hands will honor God with what they've been entrusted with. As we wrap up this thought about the ways that we can practically worship God, we need to be reminded that not every action of worship is done in the church or even in a quiet time, but rather worship of God is something that we should do all day, every day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul reminds us, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all for the glory of God. Now that does not mean that God approves us going to an all-you-can-eat pizza buffet and just throwing down and saying, hey, I'm doing it under the glory of God here, brother. But what he is saying is that whatever we do, do it as unto the Lord. It means couples, as you love your spouse as unto God, you are worshiping God. It means employees, as you are working hard unto God, you are worshiping God. It means students, as you are putting your best efforts in the classroom unto God, you are worshiping God. It means athletes or musicians or dancers or cheerleaders. It means whatever you do in those activities unto God, you do so by worshiping Him. Church, if we desire to be those disciples of Jesus who go out and make other disciples of Jesus, worshiping God has to be one of the main keys. Let me say this too. This might be one of the greatest missing points of discipleship because discipleship is not just about us training people to do life stuff. It's not just imparting intellectual or spiritual knowledge because if you, you, we can make a bunch of religious people but if they don't know how to meet with Jesus, if their hearts are not full with the Spirit of God, then we are sending out into this world a bunch of religious people, and they will not last or survive. But if we send out in a lost and broken world people who know the door, the access key, by worship into the presence of God, then they can do like Paul did when he stood even and preaching the gospel, when everybody abandoned him, and he said, but the Lord stood with me. They can endure. And then our sixth and final mark of a disciple of Jesus is that they are living their lives sent with the gospel of Jesus. Now, we say this every week here at Enon. We're talking about living sent. We're talking about you bringing the gospel, bringing Jesus to those around you. It's clear to see, Acts 13, they're worshiping God and then God sends them out. So the main question is today, how do we live our lives sent? Let me give you two quick essentials. As we prepare to close. First, in order for you to be able to live your life sent, you need to be able to lead someone to Jesus. That's very simple. Just be able to lead someone to Jesus. You need to know how to articulate the gospel of Jesus in such a way that somebody can hear and they can respond and begin to follow Jesus. In Romans 10, 14 through 15, we see Paul emphasizes the fact that people come to know Jesus By people who already know Jesus telling them about him. And he even celebrates the role of those who lead other people to Jesus, soul winners. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Let me say this. You leading somebody to Jesus does not mean that you are forgiving their sins or you have any action on on where they stand before God at all. But leading somebody to Jesus is basically through sharing the gospel. You hold them by the hand all the way to the feet of Jesus. And then they make the decision about whether or not they're going to make Jesus the Lord of their life. Several years ago, I got to lead a guy to Jesus in Arkansas. And he was so excited. He was passionate. And I had to explain this concept to him uh, because he was going around telling everybody, Man, I'm so excited. Zach saved me and it is so great. And we're like, Hey, hang on now. Time out. Zach can't save nobody. <laughs> Our strategy here of leading people to Jesus to help you know how to do that is to pray, see, share, and invite. If you want to be able to lead people to Jesus, you need to pray daily that God would give you the boldness to share and the opportunity to share. You need to see, you need to open your eyes and say, God, oh, help me to see the people you've put in my path who don't know Jesus and help me to, help me to, to notice those people, to share Oh God, give me the boldness to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus and tell people my personal testimony of how Jesus saved me. And then finally, to invite. You need to be able to to invite them to give their life to Christ. I believe that if if you get to share the gospel with somebody all the way through, then the gospel should always come with an opportunity. Would you like to come to know Jesus today? And by the way, in this room this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you can come to know him today. One of the ways in our discipleship pathway that we're going to help people do this is every fall, we're going to offer an evangelism-equipped class where you can take a class that helps you with seasoned people who, are, who know how to lead people to Jesus, help you to learn how to do this. And when we, when we are willing to honor the Lord, and this is amazing how God meets us there. Just this last week, we had another church member. He was walking... Uh, in his neighborhood, and as he was walking in his neighborhood, he was praying, just meeting with the Lord. He was listening to worship, and he said a guy came out of his, uh, out of his street and was going to be walking on the same street with him. He said immediately, he saw him, and the Holy Spirit spoke in his heart and said, I want you to go and tell that man about Jesus. He jogged up next to him, introduced himself to him, and so they started chatting as they were walking together. He ended up getting to ask him, hey man, do you know anything about Jesus? Do you go to church? And he said no, he was a skeptic. He didn't believe in God. And he said, well, man, this may sound crazy, but I believe God put me here today to tell you about Jesus. And he started telling him about what it means to walk with Jesus. He ended up giving him a Bible out of his car that he kept to give to other people. He got to pray with that man. Church, let me say something to you today. That was God moving and working. That is the Holy Spirit of God with that man that didn't know Christ. God is wanting that man to come and know Christ. And he put a gospel-believing follower of Jesus in his path. So you need to know how to lead people to Jesus. And then secondly, in order for you to live your life sent, you need to be able to lead someone then to become a mature follower of Jesus. Basically, you need to be able to lead somebody to Jesus and then help disciple them to become a mature follower of Christ. Our responsibility as Christians is not just to go into the world and lead people to Jesus and then abandon them to try to figure out how to walk with Him by themselves. I love what Robbie Gallaty said. He said, in the, inside the church, we usually track how many people have entered into a relationship with Jesus by how many people we have baptized every year. And absolutely, by the way, we should celebrate that. Praise the Lord, we got to celebrate that with scholar in their second service this morning. We got to celebrate that with another uh, student in the first service today. However, when Jesus calls us to go and make disciples, baptism, which symbolizes that picture, what somebody does after they've entered a relationship with Christ, baptism is the starting line, not the finish line. That's where the discipleship journey really begins. Jesus said in the second part of the Great Commission, to teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. As part of our discipleship process, we are developing a two- to three-hour training course that we will hold twice a year to help people be prepared to lead what is called a disciple group. And a disciple group would be, two, it would be three to six people of the same gender. And it'll be different from a life group class. Again, this is kind of that last level, that discipleship pathway. Where in that pathway, somebody would walk through a one-year Bible with people, with, with other people. They'd be trained more in the scriptures. They'll be held to greater accountability as far as in their lifestyle and their holiness. And the plan of that is that when you disciple these people, is that then they are ready to go and take other people and disciple them. Church, being a disciple of Jesus was never intended to be something that ended with you. I heard a statement years ago that said the gospel of Jesus came to you on its way to someone else. So we are called to live life sent. So these are our six marks of a disciple of Jesus. Can we give the Lord a big hand today for his word and for his truth? I'm going to ask Brother Ken, our instrumentalist, to begin to make their way up as we get ready to close here. But I couldn't help today but think about how worshiping God always tends to lead itself towards being sent. To start thinking about some of the incredible movements of God in the history past. Some of you may have heard of what is known as the businessmen's revival or the second great awakening. It it happened in the mid-1800s and it is credited that one of the men that started it was a guy named jeremiah Lemfeer. he was a dutch reformed missionary and he was to go to the city of new york that was very spiritually dark at that point and was to try to win people to jesus and one of the things that god laid on his heart to do was just to start a noontime prayer gathering so he went out for weeks and passed out leaflets and invited people to the church there on fulton street to a noontime prayer gathering The first one was held on September 23rd, 1857. It was supposed to start at noon. At 1230, Jeremiah Lamphere was the only one in the room. Can I say, as a pastor, I've been there before. (laughs) But then, praise the Lord, a few minutes after 1230, a few people started drifting. Six men made their way to the prayer gathering. They prayed very simply. It was no, no Acts 2 moment. The heavens didn't open. They were just being faithful. And then they left. The next week, a few more people came. The next week, a few more people came. And then in just a few weeks, it is recorded that there were more than 3,000 people were gathering every day to pray. And just a few months after that, is that that prayer gathering started to spread to other churches in the New York area that it then ended up to spread all up and down the eastern uh, seaboard. And there's estimated that in New York, just during that one year alone, that there were between 20 to 50,000 people who gave their lives to Christ. They started to pray. They started to worship God. They started just to meet with God. And then that led to the gospel being sent out, which then led to an estimated one million Americans came to faith in Christ in just the few months after that that ensuing year because an awakening had started. It started with people who were just desperate for God. On March 20th, 1858, just a few months after it started, the New York Times wrote an op-ed about this great movement that was going on. I actually ordered this page from this to hang in my office just this past week to remind me that God can still do a revival in dark places. But this is what it says. The great wave of religious excitement which is now sweeping over this nation is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. It is most impressive to think that over this great land tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are putting themselves at this time in a simple, serious way the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind what shall we do to be saved? Think about it. Fifties, thousands of people, what shall we do to be saved? God had sparked a revival, and God swept up and down this nation. Friends, we need it again. We need it again. We need it again. But where did it start? It started with simple people who just met to pray said, Lord, we want you. We're hungry for you. Not for religion, but for something that is real. And this morning, friends, I want to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I challenge you today. Let's begin to pray. Oh, God, let me live a revived life. Let me live a life in the presence of God. Let me pursue you. Let me be one who is devoted to worship. And I promise you, if we get that right, God will handle the sending. God will send us out from there. So this morning as we close, maybe we would freshly say, just lay our lives before the Lord. Oh God, I just want more of you today. Oh God, I just want more of you today. If you need to rededicate your life to the Lord today, hey, today is the day. If you need somebody to pray for you, our pastors will be up front. If you need to join this church, let me say something, it's very unlikely that you're going to live in the fullness of the presence of God if you don't have a church family because you're trying to get outside of God's plan. God always designed the church. Maybe today you need to join this church. Or maybe today... You just need to be saved. You need to truly enter into a relationship with Jesus. And I want you to know something today. He knows your name. He knows who you are. And He loved you enough to die for you on the cross. And this morning, if you'll receive Him by faith, He will save you. He will change you forever. Right there where you are. Just call out to Him. You can do that right now. You can say, Jesus, save me. If you'll pray that prayer from faith in your heart, then God will save you right there where you are. I'm going to ask you to stand. Brother Ken's going to lead us in a song. And as he leads us, our pastors are going to be up front. If you need to join this church, if you need somebody to pray for you, you feel free to come. If you need to call out to Jesus to save you, respond to him right there where you are in your pew. Let this be a holy moment.